0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. We've got a very special show for you today. This is the weekend edition, and we have a very special guest all the way from Western Massachusetts. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chris Martinson. Victor, it's so good to be back with you here. Chris, great to talk to you again today. Chris, for the listeners who don't know you, maybe give a little bit of some of your background because we're going to talk a little bit about our favorite topic, COVID-19.
1: Yeah. So a degree in pathology from Duke University, that means first two years with all the med students. And then at one point they put the little stethoscope around the neck. I went into the lab and did a lot of basic research for a couple of years, my postdoc as well. So about eight or nine years of solid uh, science in my background there. And then went and got an MBA and uh, went into business for a while. So I kind of speak both languages, you know, science and business.
0: Well, so this is really in directly in your wheelhouse in terms of the discussion that's going on in the public eye today. This is an area where you could definitely say you're an expert.
1: i've I've certainly studied uh, diseases, infectious diseases, pathologies, all about you know why things go wrong in the body. So yes, I understand what's happening out there and and that's why, Victor, you know, it was um, january twenty third, it was actually the twenty second. So something had come across uh, one of my feeds and I saw that China was really starting to freak out over something I'd been tracking when they hit that freak out, I did something I haven't done. I've sent out five alerts in, in 12 years of, of writing for my subscribers. So I sent out that alert, you know, I spent all night writing this thing and, and sent out that alert January 23rd and said, this thing is all the earmarks of a major pandemic virus. It has every ticks, everything that we would ever want to see on a list of a thriller novel saying this is an escaped virus of some kind of So I've been tracking this. What is that? It's like 56 days ago, I guess now. So I've been uh, tracking this for a while. I had to relearn a few things because it's been a while since I had my uh, virology text out, but it all came back pretty quick. I've been trying to make sense of it for people ever since.
0: So what was it about this particular outbreak that's different than SARS or MERS or the H1N1 swine flu back in 2009 that caught your attention that made it different or even Ebola, for example?
1: Yeah, there, there was uh, really one thing that made it really uh, bad. Three things that make this a bad virus, but there were one or two that really jumped out at me. The first is that it's got a pretty high serious complication rate of around 15%, 20%, depending on where we're talking about in the world, and about a 3 to 4% underlying case fatality rate. So that's that's pretty bad. But secondarily, it has this easy communicability between people. So as soon as I saw it was making human-to-human jumps, the first question you ask is, well, how easily does it jump? And there's a science measure for that. It's called the R-naught, which is a fancy way of answering this question. If somebody has this during the time they're infectious, how many people on average would they pass it to? And so the regular flu has an R-naught of about 1.28. It's pretty well measured. This is a function where the difference between 1.28 and 2 is like night and day. So we were first trying to get our hands around, and, and within 24 hours, I figured out the early estimates of this thing had an r naught of 2.5, which, oh my gosh, it, it means that by the time flu has gone to 100 people, this would have gone to a million people. It's, it's hard to express what that number means, but it's an expo- exponential number. And so it's just, oh my gosh, we think it's, it's that. Now we think its transmissibility might be as high as 6 or seven. It's really, really high. So it spreads super easily. But the thing that caught me, if you said, Chris, what was the number one thing that really made you go, "Uh uh-oh? And it was this, it's that it spreads asymptomatically, meaning somebody could be exposed to the virus. It's replicating in their body, but they don't have any fever. They don't have any chills. They don't have any sense even that they're sick at all, but there's enough of a viral load in them that they're passing it to other people. So SARS, wasn't like that. And so with SARS, we were able to catch people because SARS only was transmissible when it was symptomatic. So somebody's getting off a plane, point your little, you know, thermometer gun at their forehead and take a temperature reading. And if they have a temperature, you can pull them aside. You can contact trace everybody they've been in contact with pretty easily compared to people are getting off that plane. You're pointing your, your temperature gun at them. And Victor, they don't have any temperature at all and you can't, there's no way to detect that they're carrying this thing. So that asymptomatic transmission is the thing that makes this really stand out, just almost impossible to figure out how you're going to contain that, unless you have a hyper aggressive testing program, because you can still test those people and catch it, even though they're asymptomatic. So if you, if you have super aggressive testing, and a really high quality contact tracing program, so let's say I was on a bus, And suddenly I get tested. I'm asymptomatic, but uh oh, Chris, you got it. They're going to track down everybody on the bus and they're going to give all of them tests and just keep doing that until you run out of positive tests in that story and you've got everybody isolated. That's what South Korea has done and they've done a fantastic job corralling a very, very devilish virus.
0: Yeah, we've seen that in South Korea. We've seen Taiwan, Singapore, Mm -hmm. a few places in the world have done this extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. So, as we're trying to test here in the, in the West, whether it's Europe, in North America, we're only selectively testing. We're not doing that exhaustive contact tracing. We're not doing any of that. Let's talk a moment about what the purpose is behind this. Is it to eradicate the disease? Is it simply to slow down its spread? What, what do you think the goal is?
1: Well, this thing is now with us. There's no putting this genie back in the bottle. And so now we have to go into what is our mitigation strategy going to be? Because we're way past containment. My first advice on that very first day, when I was first warning people about this, if I was president, I would have shut down all air travel right away. And here's the thing about an, an exponential pandemic like this: everything you do before that exponential hits you seems like a complete overreaction. And uh, managers don't want to do that. Leaders are willing to do that, but managers aren't willing to take that risk. So we had a bunch of managers in key positions all throughout the washington dc structure it happened in canada too it's in australia it's happened in the netherlands it's it's pretty endemic <laughs> epidemic i would say that's one of the first things is you have to stop that thing from from coming in so that you have a very relatively few cases to deal with victor i just heard from somebody yesterday who said oh my gosh my daughter just came back from italy and so glad to have gotten her out of there but when she got to jfk walked right through they said they they asked her a question. She's like, Oh, I came from Italy and they stamped her book and then she came. Right. Um, That's not at all how Singapore would manage that for instance. And so that's what containment would look like. You would say, we're going to make sure we don't get any new cases coming in. In every case we're going to know about Singapore put 5,000 people into quarantine, even though they only had like 20 cases that they knew about because that's, that's what containment looks like. So now we're down to mitigation. And that's a whole different strategy it's going to burn through our population. There will come a time in the f- future when we have this so-called herd immunity, when at least 75, but probably closer to 80, 85% of the people have been exposed, have natural immunity, and or we've got a, a vaccine. Um, but you know, until that time comes, it's going to be a balancing act where three things we have to balance. First, if you let this thing get out of control and it bursts through your population too quickly, it's going to swamp your medical system. And not only are you going to get people dying from this that shouldn't have died, simply because you ran out of doctors or ventilators or even saline bags, right? So that's part one. But part two is that other people who need to use the hospital, if it's totally overwhelmed with COVID-19 uh, patients, they're not going to get the the care they need. And you may have other you know, deaths associated with that.
0: These are your typical run of the mill, heart attack, stroke, infection, all the other things that are just part of the normal course of healthcare.
1: Yeah. I've been working with with our local ambulance crew because I live in a fairly rural place, you know, helping deliver information. And they just said, look, our average response time is eight minutes, but we only have two ambulances. So they calculated it. If those ambulances are busy ferrying people back and forth to the hospital, which is 40 minutes from here, they realized that their average response time would go to an hour. And they said, by definition, that means we're going to lose some heart attack patients somewhere in there. Statistically, that's what's going to happen, right? Because, you know, of course, in eight minutes is a, a night and day compared to an hour. So, so that's part one. You have to manage, you can't, you can't let this thing explode so it overwhelms your hospital system because that's bad for everybody. And the second thing you have to really balance though is, well, what's happening to your overall economy, right? Because if you put everybody at home you, you, and have everybody quarantined, well, you can't do that because you still need people out there doing things like running your power plants and growing your food and all sorts of critical things, right? So, so you you have to allow your economy to function as much as as possible, right? And then I guess you know the, the third big thing there is, is you got to you've got to figure out who you who is really being hit and how you can protect them because this isn't a population we need to protect. Let's be honest about this. Um, for every decade. Older you are, this thing hits you progressively, if not exponentially, harder. So it hits fifty-year-olds pretty bad. Sixty-year-olds worse. Seventy-year-olds way worse. Eighty-year-olds much worse. We can identify if we were being smart about this. We would identify who our vulnerable people are by age, for starters. That's an easy way. Less easy is by what's called comorbidities. So if we know there's things that factor in badly, whatever age you happen to be. So if you already have heart condition, if you are obese, if you have diabetes you have asthma, these sorts of things, they, they tend to go badly when people get this thing. So as we get more sophisticated with this, you know, we have to balance how fast this thing is going to burn through the population. Because it's not a question of will it, it's going to. But if we're not careful and it burns through too fast, then you get those horrible things that we're seeing out of Northern Italy, out of parts of Spain right now, um, what happened in China and all of that. So that's the balancing act right now, and, and it's not going to be easy. Um, and people need to be prepared for that because no matter how well that's done, it's still going to be the largest disruption to people's lives that has happened in you know a couple hundred years, I would think.
0: It's Absolutely. Big. Absolutely. Out in the public, the narrative is, well, we're going to close down flights for a couple of weeks, send all the kids home for a few weeks. My sense is we're looking at much more than just a few weeks. What do you think?
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, first, if we say that life can more or less return back to normal once we get to some level of herd immunity, and if we, let's just say that's 75% of the population. Well, the easy way is, of course, miraculously, a vaccine comes out, and we can make as much of it as we want tomorrow, and we give everybody vaccinations, and, and we're, we're fine. It's not that simple. Vaccines are hard and you have to do testing, and it turns out sometimes they're not efficacious or they're not safe, or they're hard to manufacture they work great, but you can't manufacture them that quickly. Whatever the story is, it's a it's a thing. So barring getting a, a vaccine that comes out that's miraculously easy to make and very safe, we are going to have to wait for herd immunity to develop. And if that takes us to the seventy five percent mark in the United States, I can run that math in my head. That means we need about 230 million people have been exposed to this thing. Well, right now we're admitting to just around 10,000 cases. I think we just cracked the 10,000 mark this morning. There's so much further to go in this story. How long would that take to get herd immunity without swamping our hospital system? 18 months to two years, probably.
0: It's funny. I did exactly the same math. (laughs) I... I constructed a mathematical model just to postulate what might be the outcome and I came to hundred weeks approximately
1: yeah it's gonna be something like that it's gonna take a good long time
0: fascinating so do you see this period of social isolation being extended for a hundred weeks I mean the population is going to revolt long before then
1: yeah that's that's the tricky part I'm uh, I don't uh, you know who knows how this is going to play out but the thing that's going to make it really difficult is that, you know, we built for ourselves a global just-in-time manufacturing and economy, right? And let's take something just as simple as saying, as long as we can keep people fed, Oakland, California is fine as long as we can keep getting food in there, but just the logistics of that, Victor, of how you distribute food and how you bring it there. And, you know, if people are out of work, they're not paying for it anymore. And there's just a million questions about how you would do that. But the concern here comes in when we say things like, well, what happens, how complicated and how complex is, say, growing food, which seems like one of the easier activities. And I'm not talking about building a fab plant for the next chipset, right? And it turns out, you know, as long as you have a tractor and diesel fuel and some fertilizer, but where's the fertilizer come from? Well, it comes from a plant. Well, what's that plant made out of? A lot of tubes and pipes and SCADA controls and chips and things and well what if one of those breaks you know and st- all you need for our system to get a little wonky is for the supply chains to no longer function like they used to right apple's struggling with this right now they're thinking why don't we just move manufacturing somewhere else but it's not that easy right it's really immensely complex so that's the part i've been trying to you know help people get their heads around is just the systemic effect of what happens to a global economy that had basically no time to adjust. This was literally the equivalent of going 80 miles an hour on the highway, and we've decided we need to slam it into reverse through the gearbox. We're just tossing it into reverse. It's it's really jarring. In the absence of that, we just don't know, Victor, what's going to happen to our supply chains. But already we've seen the medical supply chains uh, be completely wanting because all the mask-making was not in this country. It was somewhere else. China, turns out, makes 97% of the United States, and I believe this is true for North America, of our antibiotics. That's pretty much shut down at the moment, and on and on and on. So those are the parts that I think we're going to have to get ready for, is that there are going to be shortages, and some of them are things that even if we wanted to, we can't do anything about, because the idea of just say, well, we'll just open up a new manufacturing plant for penicillin, right? It's not, that's, you know, for people who haven't been in the biz, of uh, seeing what it takes to actually put a plant in operation. I know you have that experience. I don't think they appreciate just how tricky that really is.
0: It's extraordinarily difficult, and there are so many supply chain disruptions and dependencies that we can't even begin to wrap our heads around. I mean, there's many businesses that today are sitting on anywhere from three to seven weeks of inventory here in North America. And so we haven't felt the pain yet, except for maybe surgical masks eventually those inventories are going to run out and we're going to start to see those supply chain disruptions opening up all over the place.
1: You know, I was talking with somebody who's who's uh, in a supply chain for a average size company and they're doing a lot of fiber optic things and asked him about that's the first order dependency which is well what's an inventory and then I said well what's the second order dependency we need to know about and he said well we have about 12 plants, five of them are shut down right now. We can load balance a little bit, but here's the thing the plants that deliver the things to those plants. He said, we chased it down and calculated and realized that we had if 1% of our supply chain shuts down, we're out of biz because, you know, there's somewhere in there there's a critical component that's flowing in. If that critical component comes from a single source, that's what, oh how many single source components do we have? And it turned out they had a number of them. Right. So what do you do? You have to find a second source. But some of these things are really specialized, very difficult to just sort of fire up, which we saw in the, in the earthquake in Japan in 2011, there was a, an obscure polymer gel plant that got taken out, just wiped out by the tsunami. For people who weren't tracking it, what happened was there was this enormous disruption in the electronics industry because it turned out that was the only place making a polymer gel that was used to fashion lithium batteries into moldable shapes, which guess what? That's what you do now to cram them into these really tight, thin cell phones is they have all distinct sort of shapes. That was it. That was the only plant that made the stuff, you know. So there was a real emergency there for a while until that was solved, but it was a crisis and that was just with one plant getting taken out. We took out China's entire manufacturing center from the center of the country north and out to the coast. I've heard stories it's up and running. I've heard stories it isn't running. I've seen the pollution data that says nothing's running. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm convinced it's going to be a long time before that gets stabilized and brought back up to anything close to what it was.
0: Apart from sitting home and watching the news and getting depressed about it, for those who are leaders, for those who have a sense of agency, what should they be doing?
1: Well, this is going to call us all to greatness um, right here. I think the most important thing any of us can do is understand two parts to this. The first part is understand that we're all going to go through our adjustment reactions around this, which is not a logical sort of a progression. An adjustment reaction is, is an emotional process that everybody goes through when we face big disruptions in our lives. And the adjustment reaction is going to be something that I want to grant all of your listeners to give themselves permission to go through and to experience over and over again. It's not like you go through it and you're done. You may find yourself with running into this over and over again. Like you've sort of adjusted to the fact that your kids are now home, and two weeks later, that hits you in a new way, and you have a new adjustment reaction, and on and on. So that emotional process is going to happen. Give yourself the opportunity to experience that. Don't fight it. Don't take the value don't drink it down. Don't argue it out with your wife or husband. Let it flow through because what we really need is people to step up into their highest selves here and really lead by example and use this opportunity to just adjust quickly to the new reality. So, oh my gosh, I can't do what I used to do, but now's the time I'm going to learn a new skill. I'm going to learn a new language. Everybody needs to plant a garden like pronto. He said, Chris, give me one thing I want everybody to do. If you can, even if you're on an apartment ledge, you know, put the pot out there with, with one seed in it. But I think people need to plant a garden here because it's very productive, gets you outdoors. It's great exercise. It's a very positive thing to do. And you might need it if the food disruptions happen, because who knows, we can't get migrant labor because we've closed the borders or whatever the story is, right? So things are going to be really disrupted for a while the idea here is to do what you can within your own nuclear family structure to be as positive and forward moving about it. And then understand if you've gone through your adjustment reaction, you're still moving. There are a lot of people out there who haven't, and there are going to be people out there who need help. And a lot of, in my town, all the elderly people, we're having conversations right now, like, how are we making sure that they have food? We really don't want them going out and trying to get, you know, go into grocery stores and battle it out and all of that stuff. How are they getting their medicines? We all know people like this. They're immunocompromised. They've got Crohn's disease. They have something that, you know, otherwise younger people, anybody who's got one of those comorbidities or one of those things that would be challenging, really challenging if they got exposed to this, let's help them stay completely isolated as much as possible. Let's bring them and help them out as much as we can. So we're really, we're all in this together. My strongest advice is we have to get through our adjustment reactions as quickly as we can. Have them again if you want cry in the closet you know whatever you need to do but this is where this is where uh, our best selves have a chance to come out
0: well Chris we could probably talk for hours like this but this is the real estate espresso podcast so we're going to keep it short if folks want to get in touch if they want to learn more what's the best way well
1: peakpresperity.com is the website come there I, I've got a daily uh, videos coming out on YouTube but of course we're linking to them from our own site as well so you can find them easily there. And if, uh, people wanted to just sort of say, you know, is this guy nuts or, or what was he really onto? Just, just start with the very first video I produced where, where I had about 12 hours of information under my belt and see what I said. Victor, we've known about what this was for a long time. It's a real mystery why countries have been so slow to understand this at the official level. So check out the videos on come by We've got lots of great stuff going on there, helping people adjust to this. Cause as you said, we could talk for hours it touches financial aspects, health aspects. Uh, we got an article right now that Adam wrote, which is all about if you're in home quarantine or self-isolation, what are the things you need to think about? Great article. Lists out a lot of our resources. Luckily, people have time on their hands. So you you know dive into what turns out to be just a, a fire hose of material.
0: You know, it's a funny thing. I'll, I'll just leave the listeners with one thought here. While this is enormously disruptive and it's impacting our business just like it's impacting everyone's business, I'm also looking at this as an opportunity. I'm looking at additional time on my hands where I can't make progress on certain projects saying, well, what is it that I've been putting off that I now actually have an opportunity to bring forward and bring current? And I'm actually viewing it very positively as a tremendous opportunity.
1: Great. I love hearing that. And and uh, I'm doing the same thing. And so if you can make that pivot early, that's great. That's really really, really inspiring.
0: Well, thank you. And I have to credit you, Chris, you put me onto this early. Uh, You were one of the very first people to flag this publicly as being a huge issue. I know that I went out, I stocked up, made sure I have 60 days of at least 60 days worth of food and supplies. So I don't have to leave the house for 60 days if I don't want to. And I know you've got quite a bit more than that, but I want to credit you for that. And frankly, it's made me feel very safe and very secure. So I'm not stressed about this.
1: Exactly. Perfect. So that that's why I've always advocated preparing because it's, uh, it gives you that peace of mind, which is honestly one of the most important things you can have.
0: Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks again. And for the listeners at home, definitely check out peakprosperity.com. Go to Chris's daily videos. I watch them religiously every single day. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. I'll talk to you again tomorrow.